Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, hello again, my friend, and welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis, your chief of the Stream Police, if you will. I talk movies and television here on the show every month, and in just a little bit we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, the music man, Andy Sedlak. Uh, he was he was missing in action last month, but we've got him back. Uh, we, we've got him back out in the field. He was he was behind the desk doing you know pushing papers, but now. He's back out there on the streets patrolling what's streaming out there in music. So we'll hear from him in just a little bit. But welcome back into the show, my friend. Always good to hear from you. I want to apologize in advance if you can hear. I try to keep my my audio nice and neat here on the show. Despite our shoestring budget, what's less than a shoestring? I'm actually not sure. But that's what we would be operating on. But anyway, I'm uh, I'm just apologizing if you can hear like the rumbling of the air conditioner through the microphone here as I'm in my closet just outside of Columbus, Ohio, because it is like 90 something degrees here in mid-September and it's just blazing out there. So we've got the air cranked up and it's, it's kind of loud. I could hear it through my headphones. So I just... Uh, you know, I only want the best for you, my friend. Only the best. Only the best. And, of course, uh, this show is available on all kinds of streaming services, wherever you like to get podcasts. But if you want to check it out on Spotify, you can do that. We joined Spotify not all that long ago. Uh, but our playlist, of course, that Andy, and sometimes me, but usually Andy, adds five songs to every single month, is at Spotify as well. So you can get the whole Stream Police experience right there just by searching stream police podcast both things will come up for you You can follow the playlist you can follow the show and get notifications for every new episode right there all in one place uh let me urge you also to check out the overdue review youtube channel where i am and also follow me on instagram at mr clint davis and also on tiktok at mr clint davis same at both places, Andy is on uh, Instagram as Andy Sedlak. His last name is S-E-D-L-A-K. Uh, like I said, he'll be back. He's going to be talking in his segment this month about Charlie Watts. 
the late, great Charlie Watts. The diverse career that he had, a lot of people just think of him as the Rolling Stones drummer, uh, but he was a very respected drummer, um, not like, you know, some of the some of his contemporaries of kind of classic rock drummers who were just, you know, a lot of them, I mean, you've got, of course, the John Bonhams and the Keith Moons and the Neil Peart's and, and people like that who everybody knows if they're, you know, Ginger Baker, if they're into drums at all. And even if they're not, they know these names because these are titanic legends of the instrument. Uh, and Charlie Watts was not one of those guys because he wasn't big and loud and bombastic, but in the drumming community, very respected um, and a really a kind of a diverse career, which Andy uh, is going to get into in his segment. But man, what a grim month it's been since the last time we spoke. I mean, Ed Asner dies. Okay, I'll give you that one. Very old guy, but still, I mean, what a killer career he had. Um, even up to recent years doing the voice work in Up, which, you know, many people consider to be one of the great Pixar masterpieces. I don't quite put it there. Up never was my thing, but I, I did like Ed Asner's performance in it. I think it was just f- tremendous casting on the part of the um, the people at Pixar to get him to do that role because he, he just was perfect for it, and I think he did great work in it. Uh, but, yeah, he passed. He's gone. And that was the least surprising, but it was still sad. But we also we lost Norm MacDonald, and we lost Michael K. Williams since the last time we spoke. I mean, these are guys that I would never even have imagined being people I'd be eulogizing on this show over the years. I know Michael K. Williams certainly had his battles with drugs, and that was well-documented. Um, and, you know, he had plenty of personal demons that he battled, and his he was one of those kind of late risers. Uh, where he didn't really, he got his big break in The Wire, uh, where he played Omar, of course. So, I mean, you're talking about the last 20 years was when he really took off, and he was a little older when he played that part. Um, And then, you know, got work in tons of other places, including Boardwalk Empire, where he was fantastic as well. But Michael K. Williams was one of those guys that just, in The Wire, you, you couldn't watch that show and not be glued to him. He was so magnetic. And his character, I mean, Omar is one of the great characters in American television history, no matter who you ask. So, um, and it was a lot due because, you know, his performance, that scar that he had has across his face, you know, or had, I guess now at this point, had across his face. Uh, and just the, the attitude that he brought to that part, the fearlessness of playing a gangster who was not only, you know, a thinking man and kind of a Robin Hood, but he was gay and, uh, you know, that was depicted graphically on screen many times over the course of The Wire. And, you know, a lot of guys wouldn't have necessarily been jumping to play a part like that. I wouldn't have known what to do with it. But Michael K. Williams just, I mean, I think the guy had balls of steel and stepped into that role and gave it his all. And, uh, I mean, he, he kind of made that show a lot of in a lot of ways, uh, even though, I mean, that's a great ensemble show. There's so many great moving parts in it. But... As far as one single character that everybody remembers and loves, Omar's got to be it, obviously. He was kind of the heart and soul of The Wire. But Norm MacDonald, I mean, you know, that was that was a real stunner because nobody knew he was sick. Um, you know, I didn't. And uh, I pay attention to these kind of things usually. I mean, they used to call me The Undertaker at work because I wrote so many celebrity uh, obituaries back in my old job. Uh, but Norm MacDonald was a total shocker for me, and he was just one of those guys that really brought 
life and, uh, you know, smiles and heart, I think, to kind of everywhere he went, even though he had that he had that uh, reputation for being a major smartass, obviously, but it wasn't like mean spirited. and He wasn't nasty. And I think everybody genuinely liked him. And you've seen the outpouring of people like the other comedians that he supported behind the scenes that you didn't even realize. Um, and I think he was just a genuine good guy. And he described himself, I know, as a hick from Canada. Um, you know, he was from like a rural part of Canada and just basically raised like a hillbilly in Canada. And so he was, you know, he comes from this kind of salt of the earth background. And I think it came through in his comedy all the time, even though he had tremendous success. I mean, not just at SNL, but, you know, his own sitcom and, you know, his own starring roles in movies. I mean, not, not everybody gets that. Those are huge, you know, kind of opportunities that anybody would kill for that's uh, interested in going into entertainment. And Norm MacDonald had those. And he was also a consistent, great interview on late night talk shows. I think every late night talk show host loved having Norm booked because he just just look at look online and you look at his stuff he did with Conan and the stuff he did with uh, Dave Letterman, especially, um, you know, I mean, there's a reason why they had Norm come on during the last week of Letterman's run on CBS when they could have chosen anybody. It's because, I mean, he was uh, he, he was good friends with him. And he was always great on the show. So anyways, i just like to say, I know that uh, Mr. Letterman is uh, 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 not for the mockish, and uh, he, has, uh, he has no truck for the sentimental, but if something is true, it is not sentimental, and I say in truth, I love you. Oh, my God. Uh, he's a guy I think is going to be tremendously missed. But yeah, we lost uh, we've lost some pretty pretty big players in the last month. So kind of a grim month. And like I said, Andy will be going back to his job as the um, as the obituary writer in chief here on the Stream Police podcast. He's like our own resident undertaker here because he's uh, talked about so many dead musicians over the years that we've been doing this show. But he'll be digging into Charlie Watts and his career as we get going. All right, let's. Uh, let me light up my stogie. I always like to like my, light up my stogie here in the closet. Get things going. Get it nice and smoky. Now we can get on to the real stuff. And that is recognizing another entry into our canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time. This week. And uh, number 67 into uh, this this hall of great TV show theme songs. Not just great, greatest TV show theme songs ever. Uh, this is, I, I think you're going to love this one, my friend. And if you don't, then, you know, I don't know how well you're going to fit in at this show. Honestly, if this is one of your first time joining us and, and, and you're listening to the greatest TV show theme song of all time and you're not enamored with this choice, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know what I can say to you because how you, you need to go be checked out by a doctor because I just don't know how you could be alive, honestly, and not love this song. So anyway, CNN apparently did a whole special about how the TV theme song has virtually become extinct over the years. I got a message about it from one of our great listeners, Mandy, who sent me a picture of this show airing on, on CNN, and it was like the death of the TV theme song, or whatever, because they've been doing this whole thing on sitcoms. 
And I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't think the theme song is dead because we, on this segment, I've done plenty. I mean, just last month I did BoJack Horseman, and that's a new one. And I think Netflix has done a good job of, of having TV theme songs that are worth listening to, even though Netflix gets a lot of blame for having that skip intro feature that they have implemented. And that whole thing is horse shit. But the theme songs they've done, I think, have been you know pretty decent over the years, even going back to uh, uh, you know the first big show that they ever had, House of Cards, I had a good intro as well. So I think that theme songs are not dead, but I do think the old cliche of they don't write them like they used to applies to TV theme songs because they definitely don't write them the way that they used to at all. I mean, think about the idea of this big sing-along TV theme song opening a show every single episode is so dated and would make it would be unheard of today. And people would call it cringe and they would think that it's try hard or whatever they would say. And that's that's the way people feel now. But we're going to go back to an era when that was the only way to open a show. Honestly, a song that you knew the lyrics to. Usually it told you something about the show and it was just something you could sing along with. We're going to the heart of the 1980s, the sitcom age roaring along. And in September of 1985, NBC debuted a classic show with an equally classic theme song. I told you you were going to like it. Thank you for being a friend from the Golden Girls. This track fits the show to a T. So, you know, I'd forgive you if you thought that the song was written just for the Golden Girls, but... It was not. In fact, this song goes back way earlier, actually, than 1985. It goes back seven years before that to 1978 when it was written and released as a normal song, uh, as a single, in fact, by soft rock giant Andrew Gold. You might remember him from, uh, he had the song Lonely Boy back in the day. Really good song. I love that song. Just a soaring sing-along chorus. Uh, they used it in Dumb and Dumber in the soundtrack, actually. Uh, really good uh, moment for that song but anyway Andrew Gold is the one who wrote and performed and recorded Thank You for Being a Friend originally and this song was a top 25 hit on the Billboard chart for Andrew Gold back in 78 so it was a pretty well-known song already it's not like nobody had ever heard this it wasn't a, a deep cut or something but music nerds I thought this was interesting if you're a music nerd you're gonna drool to hear about who was on the recording of the, this song originally when Gold did it uh, the song, first off, it stretches out to like five minutes in length, the original version. And the guitar player on the track is Wadi Wachtel. And the drums are played by the late, great, greats and understatement, Jeff Porcaro, who's one of the all-time studio musician legends. So, I mean, just tremendous muscle behind this song in the first place. But that's not the uh, version of the song that we're celebrating today, of course. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. No, the version of Thank You for Being a Friend that was used on the Golden Girls was recorded by an artist named Cynthia Fee. Cynthia Fee. I was trying, I was like, man, that is a name I don't know any, I've never heard that name before. Not able to conjure up anything out off the top of my head from that one. I'd be surprised if Andy was uh, able to as well because I looked her up. And in my research, I like to do a lot of research for this segment, the only thing I was able to find about Cynthia Fee was that she was best known as a jingle singer. So she did like commercial jingle music, I guess. 
and that the biggest track of her career was the theme song for the Golden Girls. So that this is the biggest thing she ever did. And honestly, you might laugh at that. And some snobs out there might laugh at that. But there have been so many other musicians who've toiled away and left so much of a smaller legacy on music. You could have a way worse lasting mark on the music business than having done Thank You for Being a Friend from the Golden Girls. I mean, Cynthia Fee's performance of this was going to last for decades and decades while other, you know, better songs are going to disappear. And if you threw a party, everyone you knew. The song's lyrics about friendship and the earnest style of the music, you know, I mean, it was that mid-80s kind of thing. Power rock was really taken off and... I just think the whole style of the song fits perfectly with this comedy about this group of senior women who are living out their retirement years together in a house in Miami. Um, The Golden Girls, to me, is just one of those shows that it was so unique. I really honestly think you cannot compare it with any other series because the premise is crazy. Like, TV and movies in the United States are so notorious for being ageist. And it's like once a woman is over the age, especially a woman. Now, for men, it's a little less so. Uh, but but for women, I mean, once they're over the age of like 40, it, it pretty much is what it is if you're an actor. You're relegated to like, okay, you're going to be a supporting character playing somebody's mom um, is what it is. Playing some hotter actor's mom or something like that. Um, and... The Golden Girls puts four legitimately older women actors uh, right at the forefront of this show, and they are the star characters. And they're talking about, you know, pretty topical, serious stuff in the storylines of this sitcom. And yes, it's a sitcom, so it's goofy. But I mean, really, I think it's pretty groundbreaking. And there still has not been another show that you can really compare to it, especially with the success it had. So it just, I think they caught lightning in a bottle, honestly. And I, you know, I got to give NBC a lot of credit for putting this show on the air and giving it kind of the gas that they did for all those years. I mean, this show was on the air for seven seasons. That's a remarkable run for any series. But especially at a time when, you know, there were a lot of Titanic sitcoms out there. The Golden Girls always held its own. The show has only grown in popularity over the years. And part of the reason that I think younger viewers love this show and find it so interesting and lighthearted and fun is because of this theme song. I mean, you just can't help but crank it up. You would see the biggest gift would be from me and the car. The Golden Girls would run for seven seasons on NBC, ending in 1992 after 180 episodes. 92, I mean, that seems crazy to me that the Golden Girls was on in 1992. It just seems so late for that show, doesn't it? It won 11 Emmys over its run. It was dominated for dozens more. And this is the most amazing thing to me. This is one of the very few shows in TV history where all four of the lead actors, all four of the women in the lead roles, won an Emmy for their work on this show. So all of them won at some point during the run of this series. That's kind of incredible. And it's a real testament to their to that cast, honestly, because they really were all perfectly cast. It was just a it's just it's just a, a tremendous cast of women. They're all just they nailed their parts so well. And uh, the opening music, Thank You for Being a Friend, written by Andrew Gold and performed by Cynthia Fee in this performance, is a stone cold 
classic, a karaoke classic, and it's our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. man a full-on cultural phenomenon at this point i feel like for the first 20 years of my life and i was a young 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 kid when it went off the air uh but i feel like for the first 20 years of my life i didn't really even hear about the golden girls at all but now it's like it's come back with such a vengeance and uh it's just a like i said a cultural phenomenon a touchstone to be honest and uh everyone Loves that show, and and it's easy to see why. I mean, what is there not to love about the Golden Girls? Certainly the theme song is one of the things you you just have to love. All right, speaking of things that I think are lovable, charming, very hard to critique, I want to talk about the latest Disney Pixar movie to come out, and that is Luca, which just uh, landed on Disney+. Plus. For all subscribers, you don't have to pay the like $20 extra, uh, the rental fee that they do for some of the like premium movies when they come out and they hit theaters and they also hit Disney Plus. With Luca, just like they did with Soul, uh, which came out, you know, last year, they have just released it on Disney Plus for subscribers. So there's been some controversy about that, some blowback from the people at Pixar who are feeling like they're starting to be relegated, like the, the higher ups at Disney don't respect the Pixar brand and they're not, you know, they're not giving it as much attention as they do the other brands. And I think you would be insane to think that Disney doesn't respect the Pixar brand. I mean, it has been responsible for some of the biggest money makers that Disney has ever been attached to. When you think of the Toy Story series, I mean, they keep going back to that well and it keeps working, not only box office wise, but uh, critically as well. I mean, some of the most critically acclaimed, uh, constant Oscar winners coming out of the Pixar wing. So I don't think that, I, I just, I look at it as a way that Disney is really just trying to make Disney Plus something that you feel like you have to subscribe to. Like and, and if they keep doing the thing where it's like, okay, subscribe and pay $10 a month or whatever, but also we want you to pay $20 extra whenever a movie you really want to see comes out, um, then, I mean, people are going to obviously... I mean, a lot less people are going to watch the movie first off, right then off the bat. And they're going to think, like, why am I even subscribing to this if I'm also being asked to pay for this? So I think putting movies on Disney Plus right away for subscribers like this, which is a huge, this is a big release, um, I think it's it's important. But, I mean, honestly, I don't think Luca or Soul were going to be the kind of Pixar movies that were going to like dominate the box office in the way that a new Toy Story movie does, in the way that a Monsters Inc. movie does, um, because they're all they're they're kind of Luca's a, a little bit more of a smaller film, first off, um, and Soul I think was a little bit heady. Now Inside Out did very well, so maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, just the the Pixar name I think does kind of bring a lot of prestige to the box office, but people just aren't going to see movies right now. Really, so uh, I, you know, I am glad Disney Plus put this on there because 
purely from a selfish reason because I was able to watch it with my son. Like, um, you know, the the weekend it came out, basically. And I loved it. I just I wanted to talk about this movie because I think uh, it's as good as anything Pixar's done in the last decade. And really, to me, the best that they've been in the last decade was Coco. And this was easily my favorite movie that they've done since Coco. I think the heart that was there in Coco, which is what I loved so much about it, is still there in this one. This is a very heartfelt movie. Very different kind of story, though, whereas Coco was all about family and the importance of tradition and your ancestors and keeping their memory alive. And it was such a heart, you know, breaking kind of tear jerking movie. Um, and just a beautiful movie. And obviously a musical as well with some great music in it. Um, and it, it just a feast for the eyes. Luca is a lot smaller. It feels a lot more like a, uh, a foreign film, honestly. And it doesn't necessarily feel like a European movie. To me, it feels like a Japanese movie. Um, and if you're an animation nerd, I feel like this is the closest thing to a Studio Ghibli movie, which is the, the, you know, huge studio out of Japan that's responsible for, you know, like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service and some of those really iconic anime movies that have come out, uh, you know, over the last three decades or so. Uh, again, some of the most acclaimed movies in animation history, and there's a, a reason why. I mean, I, I've seen every single one of their movies, and honestly, I love pretty much all of them, some of them more than others, uh, but they're really, this, that studio just doesn't miss, really. And it's not even that they don't miss, they just crank out masterpieces, at least they have, for the most part, over the last 30 years. But I've watched a lot of animation over the years, and a lot of American animation, and Ghibli just has a unique heart that they put into their movies and a soul that's there that is not there in a lot of American movies where because when you're watching an American animated movie a lot of times it just feels like they're trying to sell you something right they're trying to send you right out the door to Target to go buy a toy that's based on the movie and the Ghibli movies never feel that way like it feels like they're just trying to make cinema Honestly, that uh, it does really appeal to kids because you think of a movie like Ponyo, which is a Ghibli movie, that I think is just amazing for adults to watch. But it is such a great movie for children to watch as well. It's just there's nothing really that's going to, um, you know, blow their heads up too much. And there's nothing that is, you know, really too scary or anything. Some of the Ghibli movies are too scary for kids and really are they are made for adults. Uh, but like a movie like Ponyo, really good for children. But Luca is like that. And Luca reminds me of Ponyo in several different ways. Um, but it, it's just got that tone, I feel like. And that's one of the best compliments I can give any animated film from any studio is that you remind me of a Studio Ghibli movie because that is, to me, like the high watermark of family animation. Um, and this is the closest thing, I think, from an American studio that I have seen to being in that vein. So, you know, I would be stunned to if I heard that the director of this movie, Enrico Casaroso, was not a Ghibli fan because I bet he's probably uh, a diehard Ghibli fan, honestly, from what I was able to pick up from this movie. But anyway, enough about Ghibli. Let's talk about Luca. And like I said, Enrico Casaroso is the guy who directed this movie. He is Italian. This movie is set in Italy. And so I think you've got that kind of real, you know, authentic stuff built in here like you had with Coco. And you had so many Mexican artists and writers and musicians working on Coco, that's what gave it 
that real authentic thing that was, you know, would be missing because Disney so often has just done like, well, let's do, you know, a movie uh, set in some exotic foreign land and we'll have like white guys write it and draw it and we'll send them on a week long trip to go there and suck up the essence of the country. And then they're going to, you know, write this movie that is going to influence generations of kids. It's how they think about these certain countries, even though they're, it's not anything like that. So I think that that's where Coco was such a winner. And that's where Luca is such a winner as far as its world building goes, because it's a gorgeous movie. The setting is great. It's this little Italian town and the story of the movie, if you don't know anything about it, it's, it's about a, a kid named Luca who is at the beginning, you see, he's a sea monster. So he lives under the sea with his family and his family is very careful. They're like, you know, never go to the surface, never, obviously never let humans see you because humans want to kill us and blah, blah, blah. It's a whole thing. Like they think humans are monsters and the, the humans think that the sea monsters are monsters. It's, it's nothing, there's nothing totally new there. That's the stuff that we've seen before. We've seen that allegory many times, but, um, he, you know, obviously ends up going up to the surface. And when he goes to the surface, he is able to turn into a human. He looks like a human uh, unless he gets wet. Then he goes back to his kind of sea monster form. So that's where all the tension of this movie comes from is he's trying to live amongst the humans uh, and not get revealed to be a sea monster. And you can take the allegory in many ways as far as what they're talking about here. Uh, but it's a, it's just a really, I, I thought the script was fantastic and I thought the animation was tremendous. It This was... Um, one of those movies that just had so much heart in it. I, I felt like uh, Casarosa and his crew were just trying to really tell a genuine story about kind of being different uh, as a kid and also about, you know, how important friendships are when you're that age and when you're trying to figure yourself out how important it is to know others who you can connect to. And I, what I thought was amazing was that this was his first movie. This is... Casarosa has never directed a feature-length movie. He had done one of the shorts uh, that that Pixar released years ago, but this is his first feature-length film, and the confidence behind this thing is so full. It doesn't look like other Pixar movies. I thought the animation looked unique, I, honestly, and maybe I I don't know. Maybe I was just seeing something that wasn't there, but to me, it looked almost like claymation. I mean, obviously, it wasn't claymation. But it looked like they animated it with like the claymation eye in mind with the kind of Wallace and Gromit thing going on. And especially like when I was looking at their mouths with the way they kind of have that sideways grin and they've got these kind of goofy pointed teeth. Everyone looks just a little bit weird and the movements are a little jerkier than what you would see in the sophisticated way that, you know, Pixar animates its movies now. And like we saw in a movie like Onward uh, last year or Soul as well. Um, it, this was, this one looked, the animation looked a little different to me. And I say that in a good way, saying that it looked jerky, even though you might think that sounds like it's like it looks shitty or something, but no, I, I really, I liked it. Um, I thought it just looked different. And, and again, I thought that was incredible when I realized that this, this was this guy's first movie he's ever directed. So the confidence was tremendous and I can't really wait to see what they turn him loose on, uh, next, but the characters are so likable which is something I, I credit to the script and also the voice actors. They also, they possess depth. Um, you've got this very confident girl as one of the main characters, which was another thing that reminded me of Ghibli uh, as well, because their movies almost always focus on a girl. 
and she's you know a little different, very confident usually, um, and, and able to kind of figure out who she is throughout the course of the movie. Great, they're always great at the coming of age thing, and that's what this is. This is a coming of age story, uh, but also just a, a story about friendships is is what is at the heart of this. And there's such a gentleness to this movie that I just feel like hasn't been there in a while from Pixar. Um, like, I don't feel like soul was very gentle. I feel like soul was kind of jabby. It was kind of in your face, especially the Tina Fey character. She was, you know, even would grate on you a little bit. And that was kind of the point of her. Uh, but also onward was very in your face for the whole way through. It was just a very in your face movie. And I liked the story of onward a lot, but it was kind of just a loud movie. But this one is very gentle and more so even than Coco is. Uh, but there's just a gentleness and a heart here that to me hasn't been there for a while from Pixar. And that's why I compare it to Coco because that's to me the best of the more recent movies that they've done. So comparing it to that is the kind of the best compliment I can give it in the Pixar, uh, vein. I loved the voice performances. Jacob Tremblay plays Luca, uh, himself, and he does really great work here. Uh, but to me, it was the animation and the script that really blew me away. Um, like I said, you've got that kind of jerkiness in the animation that made it look unique. Also, the characters are very cartoony, very stylized in noticeable ways, whether it's kind of these those those crooked mouths I was talking about or they've got exaggerated noses. All of them kind of have different shaped, unique noses. They've got unrealistic hair. You know, I mean, just a really well-stylized, well-designed uh, art style behind this movie. It was just loaded with style and charm, I thought. It didn't have the obnoxious stuff that can really put adults off from kids' animation. And I've watched a lot of kids' animation over the years, even before my son was born. But since he was born, we've watched more. And a lot of ones that I wouldn't necessarily have watched unless he wanted to. And a lot of them are obnoxious. I mean, they're just kind of loud and in your face. And that's the way they think, you know, we got to talk to kids. But my son really liked watching this. He's three. And some movies... He's like kind of done with them after a half hour. He's ready to do something else. He just starts walking around, basically. Um, but Luca, he watched from start to finish, and I think he really did like it, even though this wasn't some like crazy action-packed movie. Um, the story of, the, of the, the big kind of plot mover in the story is that there's a race in this little town that uh, Luca and his friend, who's also a sea monster who can turn into a boy, um, they're going to take part in with this girl I mentioned before. They're going to be a three-person team. And if they win the race, then they're going to be able to buy a Vespa, which they're both just obsessed with because one of them has a poster of a Vespa on their wall. Um, and they think that if they get a Vespa, they can just ride all around the world, basically, and uh, their parents won't be able to tell them what to do, what not to do. So it's a total like escapist fantasy that all is hinging on them winning this race so that they can get the prize money to buy this really crappy little Vespa that they are able to uh, to, to win with the prize. So um, I just I didn't feel like this was a movie that was obnoxious, which is another big compliment you can give to a kid's movie again. Didn't feel like they were trying to get me to buy toys. I did feel like they were trying to get me to buy a Vespa, but that's another thing. Um, but the friendships built in this movie are really something special to watch unfold on screen. And I think there are some unexpected moments uh, as well and some moments of real like, oh, no, you know, you, you really worry what's going to happen to the characters uh, also. And, and there are also two really good dads in the movie, which I liked seeing also. The girl's dad and Luca's dad 
really good on-screen fathers, which are not uh, always so easy to find. But that, you know, kind of made me feel good uh, to watch it as well. I just don't have anything really bad to say about Luca. I thought it was really, really well done. It brought kind of restored my faith again in Pixar to telling these kind of stories uniquely. And this was... You know, Ghibli itself has not done a great movie in a long time. Um, so this was kind of the best Ghibli-esque movie, I think, that you can watch. So if you're into their movies, I think you really need to give Luca a try because you will see, um, I think, the kind of parallels. So I totally recommend you stream it. Whether you have kids or not, I think you'll enjoy it as long as you like animated movies, as long as you if you like family movies at all. Give this one a shot. It's really cool, um, and and it's you know just a beautiful, well-made, heartfelt, gentle movie, which is the hard to find in uh, in family animations. So uh, I, I I think Disney and Pixar should be very very proud of this movie, and even if it didn't make it into theaters, um, I, I hope that it's one that people are going to remember for a long time because it really is something special. So you can check out Luca now on Disney Plus if you have a subscription. We should ask her about this Portoroso Cup race. That's how the loud, scary human said he got his Vespa. Hey, uh, Spulia? Julia. My name is Julia. Okay. When you race in a cup, what do you get? Soldi. Prize money. Oh. Okay. No, no. Keep going. Why? Why? Ask her about the prize money. But that stuff is useless. Maybe that becomes a festival. How does that become? Just ask her. Fine, fine, fine. Hello again. Ciao. Can we turn the money into something else? Something like that? <gasps> no. But it could get you that. And it's so beautiful. Yes, we need it. Great. So we'll just win the race. You'll have to beat Hercule. Okay, so we'll beat Hercule. Huh, really? Thanks for beat Hercule, this guy. <laughs> First of all, get in line! Every summer, that jerk makes my life miserable. So no one's taking him down unless it's me! Second, this isn't any old race. It's an epic, grueling, traditional Italian triathlon. Swimming, cycling, and eating pasta. So you'd need a teammate. Well, we'll figure it out. Thanks, human girl. All right, so when I come back, I'm going to talk about something uh, on Netflix that I watched recently that just blew me away. One of the greatest things I have ever watched on Netflix, and that's really saying something. I'll also tell you about the best thing I watched this month, the best movie I watched this month, and I'll have your picks for streaming on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. All that coming up in, in just a bit. But for now, take it away, Mr. Sedlak. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've uh, been sick lately. Missed some work. And there was speculation that it, it, you know, this, this could be COVID. This could be it. Well, I got my test back, and it is negative. <laughs> you haven't got me yet, baby. <laughs> so if I sound a little nasally today, that's why. But uh, rest assured, my friends, I I am on the mend. Let's uh, let's start with this. You remember? Like that one friend in college who, when you were acting a fool, they were just above it. You might remember them rolling their eyes, uh, sitting on a couch at a party with their arms crossed. They they just they didn't want to deal with your bullshit. And yet, when you needed a driver at the end of the night, they were always there. They always took the wheel. That is Charlie Watts. Charlie Watts, the longtime drummer for the Rolling Stones. He was their drummer for 58 years, in fact. 58 years. And Charlie Watts passed away just recently at the age of 80. He died peacefully, surrounded by family. And that's the way to go. That's the way to go. Before we get uh, too far down the rabbit hole, let me introduce myself. My name is Andy Sedlak, and I do not have COVID. I oversee the uh, music department here at the Stream Police podcast, and I'm, I'm grateful for I'm grateful to Clint for uh, taking the wheel last month when when I had to sit out. As always, my friend, you did a fabulous job. You know that I love that Ariana Grande song. You know that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're going to have to go back and uh, and listen to last month's show. If you haven't already, please uh, rate and review us. It helps us stand out in that crowded podcast universe, that crowded podcast landscape. But look, we're not we're not going to talk about Ariana Grande today. Sadly, we are talking about the passing of Charlie Watts, and and the purpose of this segment is to honor him. We want to honor him. And he's a difficult man to honor because he kept to himself so damn much of the time. You know, we're talking about a guy who went two decades without giving an interview. But, you know, for 20 years, I never did an interview because I'm not really a rock star. I don't have have all the... Trappings of that, really. 
he gave more interviews in his later years because Mick Jagger got tired of doing all of the press before tour. So we were able to learn a little bit more about him then. I've never been interested in being seen. Yeah, okay. Still, you need to keep in mind, this is a man who never owned a cell phone. He played in one of the three largest bands in the history of of rock music. Their last tour grossed $415 million, and he does not own a cell phone. Consider for a moment that this man was in the same band with Mick Jagger. The way Charlie tells it, there was a little rub. Because he usually rings to say, what do you think of, I don't know, a design or something, or... But he gets very annoyed with me because I, I don't have a mobile and I don't have um, all this stuff. So he can't, you know, he's a real speed freak. So it, it sort of, he can't instantly get a reply from me. You know, has to go, postman brings it, the girl picks it up at the gate, <laughs> brings it in. Then I have to ring him and hope he's in, you know, so he gets a bit pissed off nowadays with that. Of course, that's all good natured stuff. At the end of the day, Charlie was a drummer. A drummer's drummer. And what do I mean by that? Charlie Watts played to other people's strengths. That's not to say he was not strong in his own right. But he made a conscious decision to play within the band. Not to overshadow, but to compliment not to soak up the shine, but to help others do what they do best. And when you think about it, your best coworkers are like that. Your best coworkers are like that. When it comes to Watts' approach to drumming, I'll let Keith describe it in a way that only Keith Richards can. Charlie Watts is one of the greatest drummers in the band world is ever going to see and uh, I mean it's so beautifully spontaneous and firm. he's got he got the moves you know I mean without the, a great drummer it's such hard work to like just keep the thing going you know but with a drummers they, they give you the freedom to be able to yeah do what you want to do I mean you don't feel like tied down you know and that's really what it is you know? here's Charlie Watts describing his own style. You know, I've always seen myself as a member of a band. You know, when I play with bands, I very much play in the band. I'm not... I'm not a sort of uh, Steve Gadd or or a Buddy Rich or something, you know. I mean, they are... You know, they're in a book as drummers and you book them for... You know, that's how great they are. I'm not like that. I'm very much a band member. That means Charlie Watts is not flashy. Because in the Stones, there's already so much flash on stage. Jagger, for the love of God. Richards, Ronnie Wood, grinning it up. So Charlie, Charlie Watts saw his job as being the bedrock, the foundation of the band, and and getting them to swing in the midst of, of all that flash and all that musicianship and, yes, all of that ego. 
So you probably weren't going to hear this kind of thing from Charlie Watts. That is John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. Not Charlie Watts' style. Not his style. By the way, here's what Keith Richards has to say about Led Zeppelin. And Bonham was a hell of a powerhouse uh, drummer. Although I I think he's kind of heavy-handed myself. That's where the lead comes in. Well, uh, uh, as a band, uh, I felt that aptly named... uh, it never took off for me musically. Again, he has a way with words. Let's get back to Charlie Watts. Your best co-workers are exactly like Charlie Watts. He is the consummate teammate. He's just not cut from the same fabric as John Bonham or Neil Pert or Dave Grohl or Keith Moon or Buddy Rich. He has much more in common with Ringo Starr or Phil Rudd of ACDC, or Frank Beard of ZZ Top. Again, that is not to say that Charlie Watts couldn't solo. I think it's important for younger players to know the difference here. Younger players should know this difference. It's not that he could not solo. He just made the conscious decision to play within the band. To prove my point, here's a rare solo from Charlie Watts. plays within the groove. It is a relatively rare approach for a rock drummer. It is much more common in the jazz world where there's more of an emphasis on the ensemble. And that makes sense because at the end of the day, Watts was a jazz drummer. Jazz was the first genre he fell in love with. Jazz was the genre he never grew wary of. Once he made some money off of the Rolling Stones, he put together a big band, like a big jazz band. Played several dates in the United States and abroad, and he began doing this in the 1980s. Continued through the remainder of his life. Charlie Watts released five solo albums of mostly jazz music. Charlie Watts released five live albums, all with jazz bands. Charlie Watts put out a children's book in 1964. That was the year the Rolling Stones came to the States. And this book was about jazz great Charlie Parker. 
Charlie Parker was Charlie Watts's favorite musician of all time. Watts once told an interviewer that it was this song that turned him on to jazz in the first place. He heard it as a boy in London. It is Flamingo by Earl Bostick from 1951. Charlie Watts was the oldest member of the Rolling Stones. He was the oldest member of an old band. They had to talk him into joining the band back in the day. It's because he was older and he was established. He was earning money. He was into jazz. They were a scrappy blues and R&B band. He turned them down several times in their early days. Because they couldn't offer enough money to make it worth his while. They stayed on him. And as they worked and they earned more money, they kept him in mind. When they could finally afford him, he said, okay, I'll join your little rock band. Here's Charlie Watts talking to the late, great Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes. Your role in the band. You talked about Mick and Keith and Ron. What's Charlie's role? I mean, I always consider myself a drummer, you know, and uh, so that's to keep the time and help everybody else do what they do, you know. I don't really like solo type things, drums and that. I mean, it, I I do sort of solo records, but they're they're sort of jazz type things, you know, uh, and I do them because it's. I don't do that with the Rolling Stones, but what what I do with them, I don't really know. I never look at myself like that. You don't look at yourself as just a drummer. I do, yeah. I, I read one story, true or not, that, that Mick had referred to you as the drummer in the band, and you knocked on his door and in no, no, no certain uh, terms. No, he, he used to, to annoy me, he referred to him as me as his drummer. It was just something that annoyed me at the time. Uh, the, the business side is quite changed. an honor, really, if you think about it, for anyone to say, this is my something. I'm not a drummer. It's the one instrument that I never really messed around with. Guitar, piano, bass, harmonica, saxophone, messed around with all of those. But, but I remember, I sat down at a drum kit one time, and, and like I was done after about 35 seconds. It was just, nope, not for me. Can't do it. 
I, I knew myself well enough to know that I'd never be able to do it. Now, Clint is a drummer, and he's a Stones fan. So, I know the next time we get together and we have a few drinks, we're going to be talking about Charlie Watts. And I'll be eager to pick his brain because because drummers fascinate me. It's truly, it's a full-body thing. You're literally using your whole body to drum, not just your arms or your foot every now and then. Your entire being has to be in sync. And, and I'm in awe of it. You've heard of the band The Police? Roxanne, Message in a Bottle, Dance, Don't Stand So Close to Me. Uh, of course, there's Every Breath You Take. Anyway, their drummer is a guy named Stuart Copeland. And here's what Stuart Copeland had to say recently about Charlie Watts. Well, this is something that drummers discuss long into the night, sort of like how did John Bonham get that huge sound and how did Charlie Watts have that feel. Technically, what he does is with his foot, with his bass drum, he kicks the beat ahead so that it has forward, that forward motion, but his snare drum is just slightly late. That's technically what he's doing, but just you try it, it's not going to be the same. <laughs> well, it's feel. It's a, it's, a, it's a personality. Every human being on the planet has a personality. Um, and musically, uh, when Keith Richards plays that guitar, there's a distinct personality there. And that's also true of Charlie Watts. And, you know, today there's been a lot of discussion about he was the Rolling Stones. And, okay, that's getting a little carried away because Mick and Keith also are the Rolling Stones. But if you try and replace Charlie... It ain't the Rolling Stones anymore. Without him, your listeners wouldn't really understand me talking about technique of what he did, but they would certainly notice if there was somebody else on the drums with the Rolling Stones. Let's break it down even further. Let's talk about a specific song. Let's talk about Satisfaction. a track like Satisfaction um, oh yeah remembered a lot for, for all sorts of obvious reasons but in a sense is that one of those tracks where, where, the, where the drumming where, where the Watts input is, is much more than, than the kind of headline suggests yes it's, it's a crazy beat it's just four and four dun, 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 dun. with the snare drum and the kick together just like a machine driving forward and then there's those breaks, Ooh, da, 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 da. but mainly there's no backbeat. It just drives forward. Once again, others can try. The few sound like Charlie Watts. So much of it is chemistry, and good chemistry is impossible to define. I think you get the point by now, though. The bottom line is, is that we lost a special musician, a great student of jazz, and whether he liked it or not, a great rock and roller. The Stones will continue, but boy, there's going to be something missing. 
And you may not notice it at first because they're pros. But somewhere along the line, it'll dawn on you that that something just sounds different. And that'll probably be the absence of Charlie Watts. Now, you can't live forever. But damn, it's, it's tough to say goodbye, too. He played at every Rolling Stone show since 1963. Never missed a gig. <laughs> That's what you want out of a drummer. He played at every concert the Rolling Stones had since 1963. Thank you for the groove, Charlie. I'm glad I saw you when I did. head down the home stretch you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man you can find it and enjoy it anytime you want all you have to do is search stream police on spotify search stream police on spotify it'll come right up every month we add five more songs and our first song this month is well i i doubt you guys saw this coming it's whatever bitch by Maya. You're calling me a hoe Cause I'm trying to get my freak on But bitch, we're in a club What the hell do you expect? Bitch Damn A word freaking hot So let a hater bring me down Down, 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 down We ain't getting you What goes around comes back around Now you got me coughing again. That that is such a trashy song. But I've actually always kind of liked Maya. Ever since I was like in junior high and saw the that Moulin Rouge video. Oh. Yeah, it's probably I mean it's probably best to stop there, but whew. All right, next. <clears throat> next, it's uh uh it's a cut from TLC. TLC? Yeah. This song's killer. And its title is not subtle. It's called Don't Pull Out On Me Yet. Just don't 
sounds more like a Prince song than, than a TLC song. <laughs> anyway, moving on, keeping you on your toes. Let's go with Praise God from the new album Donda by Kanye West. The devil my op, can't pay me to stop, my God at the top. Praise our way out the grave, dog. Living, speaking, praise God. Walking out the graveyard, back to life. I serve, follow your word. See with new sight. Into the night. Yeah, this life I'm living. All the advice been tipped in. Gave me that grip, no slipping. Out of my mind, we tripping. Tell me take two when I'm on one. That look out like no one. Kept it real tight like your son. Praise our way out the grave, dog. Living, speaking, praise God. Walking out the graveyard, back to life. I serve, follow your word. I don't know what to make of the Donda album. I don't know if anyone does. Uh, you know, it's it's brand new, just came out. I've only gotten through about half of it. I, I talked to a buddy at work, and I told him that every track sounds like an intro, not a song, but but an intro. Anyway, I do like that cut, though. Praise God. Kanye West. Tough tune. All right, let's finish up with a couple rock tunes. The fourth cut here is called It's Too Late by the Jim Carroll Band. Finally, this is a ballad, but it's still a rock rock song, I guess. Anyway, it's been in my head lately. Blue Highway by Tony Carey. It's cliche, but Blue Highway by Tony Carey is really, it's, it's cinematic. That's really the only way to describe the song, cliche or not. And it's also wonderfully 80s in the best possible way. Got a map of the lower 48, took the 
let's let's let that simmer. Let's hear a little more of that. Just let it simmer. Highway, Tony Carey, and that wraps it up. Guys, thanks. Great to be back with you this month. It always is. I'm going to send it back to Clint. Behave yourselves. Stay healthy. All right, see ya. Man, I know I'm not alone. And looking forward to the five songs Andy's going to pick out. But I got to tell you, I think you outdid yourself uh, this time. Some Maya and some TLC. First off, I mean, how, what can I say other than great work? Uh, but everything I've ever heard by the Jim Carroll band, I have loved. And I've never heard this song, It's Too Late. But uh, that immediately just sounded like a driving rocker, which is kind of everything I've heard by them. Um, and just tremendous stuff. And, that, and Blue Highway, I can't say I've ever heard that one, but again, got that, uh, like you said, very 80s sound in the best, best possible way, that, that synthy, dreamy thing that so many artists have tried to recapture and rip off over the years, uh, and that was you know just the heart of the 80s, I think. So anyway, check out the uh, perfect playlist there. At Spotify, just search Stream Police Podcast and you'll get the playlist. But good to have you back on the show, as always, Officer Sedlak. All right, let's get back into movies and television. Specifically, let's talk TV here for a minute. And I want to talk about a uh, a mini series that streamed on Netflix a few years ago that I just got around to watching for the first time. And this was one of those shows that I've always had on the list but just finally made my way to, I was kind of dreading watching it because of the subject matter. But anyway, I'm talking about 2019's Unbelievable, um, which has, like I said, been on Netflix since 2019. So a couple years later, I'm finally at the party, and I was just blown away by this show. Netflix originals, to me, very mixed bag. Sometimes it feels so rushed. Uh, sometimes the shows feel like they're just on a production line and there's no real, and I don't mean like the old studio days in Hollywood kind of production line where it was just constant quality. I mean the kind of production line where it's like somebody just, there's no oversight and they just kind of throw it together on a a very kind of small budget and uh, they get it out streaming and slap the Netflix logo at the beginning and then they move on to the next release that's coming out. A week from then. So a lot of the Netflix shows just feel very impersonal to me, but Unbelievable is one of these flagship prestige with a capital P kind of shows uh, that I think would have fit in perfectly on HBO. I mean, this is one of those shows that as I was watching it, 
felt like an HBO show to me, and I have not had that feeling many times over the years watching Netflix originals. But this has got to be one of the best shows I've ever watched that did not win any Emmys. It was completely shut out at the Emmys. It was nominated, but did not win a single thing. Anyway, if you don't know anything about Unbelievable, this is uh, a miniseries that's about, it's based on a true story. It's about a young woman uh, who is, you know, kind of trying to get her life together. She was, you know, had like a troubled childhood. She's a teenager now, young adult, just kind of living on her own for the first time as part of this special program. It's like a government funded program where she gets to live in an apartment that's paid for um, as long as she keeps a job and doesn't get in any trouble and stuff like that. So anyway, at the very opener of the show, she's we meet her when she has just been sexually assaulted. She's just been raped at her own apartment there. And we don't see the crime, but we see her kind of recollections of it. And we hear her describe it in great detail numerous times over the first episode uh, as she recounts it to police officers, to people at the hospital, to, you know, friends and family. Just it's like. She is constantly reliving this crime. And the first episode of Unbelievable, if you can make it through that one, then baby, you can make it through the rest of the show because it is a tough, tough watch. It's a, it's, I would almost call it excruciating, and I mean that in a good way. It's, it's excruciating in a way that it's just so painful what this woman is going through. And what she's being forced to relive over and over, she's being re-victimized by the system in the name of, you know, be clarifying details for detectives and stuff like that. But the point of it is, and the show's called Unbelievable, because of her background, because of some of the ways that she changes facts and has new things that, that come up that she's remembered when they're talking to her, um, and how nervous she gets when she's explaining it all to the police— they end up ultimately thinking that she made the whole thing up. So, and, and the show is genius in that it doesn't show you, like it doesn't give you any definitive proof other than her, you believing her that this rape definitely happened. Like there are th things can be explained away and you can, you can kind of see like, well, I can see, you know, why they went that way. But, uh, you know, obviously the show, like you, you feel your heart goes out to Marie and you want to believe her is the whole point. And so it, the show goes on for eight episodes, I think it was, and it eventually evolves and it spans a number of years and it goes across the country. It, it, the show ends up shifting its focus away from Marie herself. I mean, she continues to be a focal point of the show and she's played by Caitlin Deaver, by the way, who's just, Caitlin Deaver is one of those actors that everything she's ever been in, she is just like magnetic. You can't look at anyone but her. She's just fantastic. She is such a good actor. She's one of those. I remember seeing her when she was really young in Justified. And she had a pretty small role in Justified. She was really only, I think only in like one season, had a little arc there. But she was so memorable. I just could not stop thinking about this girl and how she just came into the show this young girl, and just like blew everybody out of the water. She was so good and believable in her part. And now I've seen Caitlin Deaver in numerous things, including Booksmart, which is one of my favorite movies the last few years. Um, and she, I think she can just do anything. I think she's just a, a phenomenal performer. And Unbelievable is a crowning achievement for her because she reaches to such depths of anguish. Um, and you just want to 
like talk to her and tell her that you hear her is all you want to do because nobody seems to be hearing her or believing her and it makes her doubt herself. You know what I never got? Ever? From anybody? An apology. Even I know when you mess up, you apologize. When you mess up so bad, when your one stupid mistake ruins a person's entire life, you apologize more. I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. Next time, do better. This is a really remarkable performance at the top. But what the show ends up becoming is a detective procedural. So it, it, the focus shifts from where uh, where Marie lives, which I think is in Washington State, and it ends up going to Colorado, where these two detectives are, who are played by uh, Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver. So it's a pair of women detectives in Colorado who are trying to string together a series of rapes that that look like they may have been committed by different people, but they're seeing enough patterns to where they think it's a serial rapist. And eventually it ends up, you know, they, they connect everything back to Marie's case. So, but it's a whole, like, it's a very slow burn kind of show. I, I know that that phrase is hackneyed at this point, and everyone wants to brag about how they like slow burn shows, and, you know, The Wire is kind of the prototypical for that. But Unbelievable is truly you'll hear a lot of shows be described as slow burns but they're really not uh they might just be boring unbelievable is a true slow burn it takes a long time for anything to pay off a long long time like there are not payoffs in every episode it's like a it it, it paces itself like a real investigation would um but what you find yourself being fascinated by are the characters the performances uh as you get to know them a little bit better the writing's really good uh, but also, you just want to see some kind of justice for Marie. That's what you're waiting for the entire time. Uh, and you're worried sick about what's going to end up happening to her because the way they tell the story, they tell it in a way that um, you're going back in time and seeing Marie's stuff, and then you're going to the present and seeing what the detectives are doing. So it's like Marie's not in the present. So you're worried like something happened to her or she did something to herself. or It's just you're, you're scared for her. So you don't know where it's going to end. But, um, you know, the, sh the show was just masterfully written, directed, acted. Uh, I was uh, I was blown away. But I will tell you, the subject matter is immensely grim. So you may feel weighed down by it in internally as you're watching it because you're waiting for this kind of relief to happen from the pain that's inflicted on the main character uh, throughout the, you know, the first episode, especially, and these, the pain that is inflicted on other women, as you get to know them, because you get to know other victims also. Uh, and you get to know these two detectives who of course have their own histories and their own reasons for, for wanting this case so badly to, uh, you know, to come to a head. And it's just, there's a lot of pain in this show and rape is not a crime that is done often uh, as the centerpiece of a series unless it's tied with a murder as well we don't see a lot of rape survivors i feel like on these kind of crime tv shows unless it's salacious and it's like law and order svu or something and it's just kind of done and over in 45 minutes but this is a long drawn out story and it is really like rape is at the forefront of it and also what makes um what makes 
police officers believe or not believe someone who's a victim of a crime? Uh, and why are you know rape victims so often accused of lying about their crime, whereas people who are robbed, you know, are almost never accused of lying about their crimes? And, and this is complicated stuff, but the show does cr- kind of try to touch on a little bit of of all of it. So it has a lot to say uh, here. There's a lot of stuff about the justice system and how it turns victims into villains sometimes, and how it can victimize victims all over again. Uh, by revisiting this, you know, what is really the worst moment in their entire life over and over and over again in the name of clearing up details or whatever excuse the cops give in the show. The detectives, the male detectives in this series are very, like, there's one who's totally unsympathetic, and he's played by Bill Fagerback from uh, Coach, and from SpongeBob, he's the guy that does the voice for Patrick, and he played Dauber on Coach. I could not believe how much I hated Bill Fager back in this show. I'm like, he's one of the most lovable, like, funny. Just Dauber was one of my favorite characters in TV history when he was on Coach. And yet, in this show, I just wanted to, like, punch him. I mean, he's such an asshole. So his part is very one-dimensional, just an asshole, doesn't believe or whatever. But there's another detective in the first few episodes of the show, who is kind of handling Marie's investigation, especially in the first episode, he's one of the main characters. Um, and you feel a little bit more for him. I think he's played with a little bit more nuance. You don't get to know him quite as well at home. Um, but as far as his work, I think you get the fact that he is trying to do this seriously and he is trying to do this fairly, but his own biases also do come into play at the end of the day. So Uh, There's just a a lot at play here. I think they handled it all pretty well. And, um, you know, just Marie is put through the mental ringer. So it's, it can be a very, it can be a tough show to watch. A lot of PTSD stuff being dealt with here as well. Um, But Merritt Weaver, I want to point her out for a minute because when I was watching this show, I didn't really know Merritt Weaver. I don't know if you are familiar with her as an actor, but she plays really the lead detective on the team with Tony Collette, who end up really investigating this case and giving it the justice that it, it deserves. Um, but Merritt Weaver is so soothing with her voice. I just could, I, I was listening to her like, God, I, I wonder if she like reads audiobooks or something, because I just want to listen to her read stories and put me to bed every single night. I found her voice to be so captivating and soothing. And I really liked her performance. I thought she was very natural, Um, And she played kind of a unique part as far as a detective role goes. This very religious woman, um, you know, doesn't curse at all and stuff like that. Doesn't follow any of the worn out kind of detective tropes where she's like a big alcoholic or, um, you know, smoking all the time or whatever. Like she's a very got to really put together home life. Um, But she is wrapped pretty tight, uh, but takes the job very seriously. And uh, Tony Collette's character is a little bit more of the freewheeling kind of um, flashy detective, but I thought Merritt Weaver really brought a lot of weight to this performance. And I just, I loved her voice. I just thought she was so, she just sounded so, uh, soothing to me every time she spoke. I'll give you an example right now. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you for calling. But I thought Unbelievable was just a very impressive show, especially coming from Netflix who not, are not always known for taking the most care on the shows. Things feel slapdash sometimes, but this was really, really well done 
Easily one of the best things I've seen produced by Netflix. This was, like I said, on the level of the HBO miniseries, which to me is about the top tier of American television, American dramatic television that you can have. HBO miniseries specifically, they are the some of the best things ever produced for TV. Uh, and this was right up there with the the you know the shows that like Mayor of Easttown that just blow you away with their pacing and with their performances and everything else. Uh, I thought Unbelievable was right at that level. So it's I don't think it's a binge watch. It took me a, a good probably two weeks to sit through the eight episodes of the show, and two weeks isn't that long, I guess, but. I certainly didn't watch it all over a weekend and I don't recommend you do either because it's pretty heavy stuff and it it will get you down. I think it's a, it's a sad, hard show to watch because of how much of this happens in real life and your heart goes out to them. But the acting is phenomenal. And Caitlin Deaver was robbed of an Emmy for her performance in the show because she was tremendous. The show did win a Peabody though. So it had that going for it, but I can't believe this thing didn't win an Emmy that uh, blows me away. But Unbelievable streaming now on Netflix. Fully recommend you watch it. Just a, a, a great achievement for them. It's been 49, 50 hours since our victim left the hospital. No one thought to pick up a phone, call the lab, ask where it is. You know the labs are always late. I'm sure the report's on the way. Oh, really? You're sure? Great. Mia, relax. Everything's right on track. Morris is sure of it. Not the enemy, detective. You don't have to yell at me. I sure shouldn't have to. Fallibility? I get that. But when we're talking about a violent rapist, a guy who at any minute could break into another woman's house and scar another woman for life, because this is not something people get over, this is something they carry with them forever, like a bullet in the spine. So given that, yeah, I do expect everyone on my team to give me 100% of their effort 100% of the time. Right, got it. And that means triple checking that the work is done right, the report is thorough, and the lab delivers its results on time. If that seems beyond your capabilities or your field of interest, maybe another team would be a better fit. If you're into crime TV and procedurals, it's like heady procedurals at all, not the ones that are wrapped up by the end of the episode, uh, I think you got to watch Unbelievable because it's it's uh, it's a really unique kind of show for that genre. So Unbelievable was phenomenal, and so was Luca, as I told you. But neither of them were the best thing that I watched this month. I always like to tell you about the best thing I watched uh, this month at toward the end of every episode, and usually it's a movie, and this time it is as well. And uh, I want to say that I watched uh, Bad Grandpa, the Johnny Knoxville, uh, you know, jackass spinoff movie for the first time ever this past month. But believe it or not, that was not the best thing I watched. Although I think the kid in that was phenomenal. I think the kid could have been nominated for an Oscar, honestly, with a straight face because he was just so, I mean, I don't know how that kid played it so straight. He was, he was tremendous. But anyway, the best thing I watched this month was not Bad Grandpa. It was 2019's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And this one, uh, let me let me be pretentious for a minute. This was a French film, romantic film, set in the 1700s. So I might have already lost a lot of you. It's a French movie. It's a romance. It's set in the 1700s. 
But the twist is that it's between two women, and this is obviously very taboo at this time. And these are two women that come from very different backgrounds uh, and have very different kind of ways that they carry themselves. One is a painter who is sent to this island uh, and commissioned to paint a portrait within a week of this mysterious kind of young woman who uh, is racked with grief following the death of her sister so it's uh and this is a woman that like doesn't really show her face anywhere won't smile uh, other people have tried to paint her portrait and have been you know just totally dismayed and kind of disappointed by how it went so they hired this other artist who again is a woman um to paint her and the two end up developing a friendship and then um it goes from there so it's a it's a it's a nice tight premise it's a very kind of constrained claustrophobic thing because they're set on this island it's a tiny cast about four people all women really are the main characters of this movie and i got to tell you the acting was as good as anything i've ever seen it was just flawless acting um and the script again perfect could not at the end of it find a single thing i would have changed about the script i think everything comes from a natural place everything builds to the perfect crescendo and it all just feels natural it just feels right uh so again i was blown away such uh, let me use the term again slow burn it's a slow burn it takes a long time to get where it's going but it all feels worth it the sexual tension is built from such a natural place and it just feels incredible when it all does finally pay off. So uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019. Uh, check it out if you have any way to watch it. It's a Criterion Collection movie now. I actually rented it from the library, and uh, I, I loved it. Just a masterclass in sexual tension, masterclass in romantic storytelling as well, and easily could be described as a feminist movie. Uh, at this point also came from a, a woman director and writer also really this was like the i guess the cast and crew was just loaded with women i mean there's like no men of of any weight whatsoever in this movie there's like one guy who has two lines or something but this is a, just a movie loaded with women and it's a story about women and uh, i i was enthralled i thought it was it was just a, a, a exceptional uh, filmmaking. I also watched Easy Rider for the first time uh, since last time we spoke, and I found it to be so timely still, and I found it to be so energetic, and, you know, Jack Nicholson was just great in it. Peter Fonda was awesome. Uh, phenomenal movie that I think is still worth your time. If you can find a, a copy of Easy Rider, if you've, for whatever reason, just avoided it all this time, really good movie, better than I thought it was going to be. And again, very timely, but the best thing I watched this month was Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019. Okay, let's talk about some movies now streaming. If you're looking for something to watch, I like to give you two each on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. Let's start on Netflix. I'm going to give you something that's light, and I'll give you something that's dark. So try to try to cover both ends here. On Netflix, something light for you from 1995, Damon Wayans, his magnum opus, Major Pain. This was one of those movies I wore out on VHS as a kid, and it's still funny. Uh, it's kind of developed a cult following over the years. Also, it's about this guy played by Damon Wayans, who is like the ultimate military killing machine, just no soul whatsoever. 
and he gets sent uh, on what is a, a shit detail for him to teach uh, like kids in the ROTC program, the junior ROTC program, just these real like misfit kids who have no interest in being there. And he's got to train them for like a compet a military competition, basically. So it's a cool fish out of water um, movie, and and Wayans is is just perfect in the role. Cool movie, uh, one of those rare war comedies that you just don't see very often. But when they're done, they're kind of always enjoyable to watch. Uh, so that's streaming now on Netflix. Major pain. Also, something dark for you from 1976. Let's go with Clint Eastwood in the Outlaw Josie Wales. This was one of Eastwood's early directorial efforts and it's really a very good one it's uh you know the the prototypical kind of badass western um outlaw who is you know trying to just stay unavoided undetected and uh, keeps attracting attention his legendary like uh reputation precedes him and you know a lot of violence comes in the way and you got a lot of that quick shooting you got a lot of great one-liners from eastwood it's it's really one of his best and if you've never seen it, give it a watch. The Outlaw Josie Wales. Very good later Western from that gritty 70s period. Uh, let's go. Let's stay in the 70s on Prime Video now. Something light for you on Amazon Prime Video. 1974's Young Frankenstein. Mel Brooks. It might be his masterpiece. A lot of people go back and forth. Is it Blazing Saddles? Is it Young Frankenstein? I am probably more on the Young Frankenstein bandwagon than I am on the Blazing Saddles bandwagon. I love them both. Don't get me wrong. I'll watch both of them anytime. But Young Frankenstein to me is the better movie, better story. Uh, and I just think Gene Wilder gives the best performance of his entire career here as Dr. Frankenstein. And the, the supporting cat, it's just a great movie. The look of it is gorgeous. It's one of those movies you got to watch in high def. And I think uh, on Prime Video, you can do that. So Give it a watch if you've avoided Young Frankenstein for all this time. I don't know what you've been doing, man. Just just check it out. Uh, also on Prime Video, something dark for you. I guess Young Frankenstein could be considered dark, but it's, it's just too funny. Uh, I'm going to give you Predator 2 from 1990. Now, Predator 1 is also on Prime right now. Totally recommend it. It's one of Schwarzenegger's best. But I figure you've probably already seen it. So Predator 2 is what I'm going to give you because it is criminally underrated. Arnold did not come back for it. So it kind of makes it look like, oh, this is one of those shitty sequels that the star didn't even come back for. They didn't need Arnold for this. The, the setting and the story is great. you got Danny Glover in the lead role now. Predator goes from being on an island, you know, in the middle of nowhere in a jungle, to now being on loose on the streets of Los Angeles. And if that's not a great premise... Then I don't know what it, I mean, again, the ultimate killing machine. And here he is. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Set loose on the streets of L.A. Uh, with police officers trying to bring him down. So Predator 2 from 1990, criminally underrated sequel, now streaming on Prime Video. Go ahead and give them both a watch. Good beer drinking movies. Uh, something light for you on Hulu. Let's go to Hulu now. From 1999, The Immortal Office Space. Endlessly quotable. Several lines from it that I still use on a weekly basis, I would say. Never gets old. Great performances from top to bottom, especially Diedrich Bader and Steven Root. Um, loaded with heavyweight, you know, kind of comedic actors and Jennifer Aniston in there as well. Um, and it's just a really, just a fucking funny movie. And I think everybody can relate to a lot of the things in it. And Mike Judge, he's a, he's a master, man. And I think Office Space was one of the things that he was, he was famous for Beavis and Butthead, obviously at that point. But Office Space showed that he could do more than just like stupid sophomoric humor. And I think Office Space is what elevated him to be able to do the things like Silicon Valley uh, and, and Idiocracy and some of the other great you know, kind of funny shit that he's given us over the years. But Office Space is tremendous. Totally recommend that if, for whatever reason, you haven't watched it. A 90s staple. Uh, also on Hulu, something very dark for you from 1974, The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's movie that he made between The Godfather 1 and 2. And honestly, it's just as good as both of The Godfather movies. This movie blew me away the first time I watched it. And every time I've seen it since continues to blow me away. The ending is devastating, so shocking, so well done. Um, and Gene Hackman is just perfect in his lead role. It's a, it's a great movie, gritty 70s cop crime drama. And it's, it's at the top of that genre, which is a, a really great genre of movies, to me anyway. And it's just a tremendous movie. The Conversation from 1974. This is, this is, really as good as it gets out of 70s filmmaking. Now streaming for you on Hulu. Finally, let's go to HBO Max. A uh, little lighter month for them this month. Usually I'm impressed with everything that they throw out, but I was kind of picking through. I, I did come up with two really good picks for you, uh, but it, there weren't as many. The quantity wasn't as there as it usually is on HBO Max. Something light for you from 1995. Friday. Come on, with Ice Cube and... Uh, Chris Tucker, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> this is about as good as it gets from 90s comedies, honestly. Again, endlessly quotable. Everybody loves Friday. There's a reason why it spawned about 15 sequels since then. Uh, but the original is just in a league of its own. It's truly one of my favorites. And it's streaming now on HBO Max. Uh, and something dark for you, 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. What a joy this movie is to watch, e even though it's so grim and desolate. I just think it looks amazing. I think the lore is incredible. Tom Hardy's phenomenal in it. But Charlize Theron steals every single scene she's in. A great feminist twist put on the old Mad Max lore. Uh, and uh, just such a well-done movie. This one blew me away when I saw it in theaters back then. And I've watched it more recently, like with surround sound blaring on Blu-ray. And it's really, I mean, it's not as good as in the theater, but it's, it's almost right there. So if you missed Mad Max Fury Road for whatever reason, and you love action cinema at all, and you like cars at all, you got to give it a watch. It's a must watch. One of the absolute 
best movies of the last decade and certainly one of the best action movies, if not the best, of the last decade as well. So that is streaming for you now on HBO Max. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Always good catching up with you, my friend. Uh, And I want to thank Andy again for weighing in with us and giving us his picks uh, for the five songs to uh, be added to the playlist. Again, check it out over at Spotify. Uh, find him on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, and you can also write him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. You can write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com with whatever you think about the show or uh, you have any requests of things for me to watch. Uh, I'd be happy to, uh, to check some stuff out for you and give you my thoughts here on the show next month. You can also find me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, and I'm on TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis also. I'll catch you in a month, my friend. Until then, stream on.